Good morning, Roots. I missed y'all. We missed you too. Uh, as most of you know, probably, that last week I spent several days in Denver, Colorado. Um, but I was surrounded by hundreds of other ministers from around the country and around the world, and um, it was wonderful. I, I look forward to this every year, connecting with them, and so I wanted to tell you a little bit about some of them. This is, in the upper left, this is the, uh, the Board of Ordered Ministry. They are the body of the ECC that is uh, charged with recommending ordinands people that are in line for ordination. And this is the team that recommended me for ordination. Uh, look at that beautiful team in the upper left. And in the middle is Pastor Henry Greenwich. And he founded the first intentionally multi-ethnic church in the covenant in the early 1970s in Portland, Oregon. And I was so honored. He, he pulled me aside after my ordination interview uh, and he wanted to hear about you guys. He wanted to hear about Roots and he wanted to hear about our plans and our vision, and he was just really encouraging, and I was honored to spend some time with him. In the lower left-hand corner, on the, on the left there, is uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Carrion. I call him the Bishop of the Bronx. He's the founding church planter of, of uh, Promised Land Covenant Church in the Bronx, and he's a force of nature. He, he like, knows everyone, and uh, you can't walk 10 feet at midwinter without being in like six selfies. So that's how I got in that selfie. He was like, TC, I need some milk in this chocolate. Get over here. Or milk in this coffee, something like that. So um, I love spending time with Mike. In the upper right is Reverend Kimberly Wright. She's a senior pastor of Church of the Resurrection in Harlem. And she's one of the very few female lead pastors of color in the covenant. And she is incredible, amazing woman of God honored to spend time with her, just be able to, to be around her. I didn't get a, a chance to get a selfie with uh, this last pastor, but that's Reverend Larry Kim. Larry Kim is the senior pastor of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and that's a church where I was on staff as church planner in residence. He's been a mentor, friend, um, just close friend for many, many years. Uh, some of the things that Larry has said to me over the years, they, they continue to haunt me. I think about them on a regular basis. And um, I could go on and on about all the amazing people uh, that I got to spend time with this, this week, uh, the amazing leaders that are in the covenant, you know, but I feel like I would just be name dropping, you know, Ephraim Smith, Brenda Salter McNeil, Sing Chan Ra, I should stop, right? <laughs> Eugene Cho, I'll just keep going. Uh, well, so, at this year's Midwinter Conference, our new president, newly elected president, um, gave an address where he announced the new emphasis that would characterize the ECC's ministry for 2019 and 2020. Uh, and it's one of our six core affirmations as a church, a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Pastor Winrick talked about, uh, President Winrick talked about how we as ministers, and, and, and this is true of all followers of Jesus, we do not love and serve others out of our own strength. We do so with a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it's very important truth for all of us to be reminded of. Uh, he talked about how the empowerment of the Holy Spirit also creates a movement of people who look like that heavenly banquet 
of people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, seated at the table in the kingdom of God. Just like at Pentecost, the Spirit creates a multi-ethnic movement of people. As we gather in small groups to pray, I was, I was reminded of you guys, and I prayed for you guys. We, uh, we gathered in groups, and I prayed that Roots would be an expression of God's Spirit-empowered movement here in St. Paul. I prayed that we would be a demonstration of the power of the gospel to break down those divisions in society and those, those divisions that society places between us. I pray that we would be gifted with courage from the Spirit to venture into uncharted territory by faith, knowing that we're safe in God's hands. And I share all this because President Winrick, nor the planners of Midwinter, none of these, none of these guys knew the subject matter that I was already planning to talk about this morning. They didn't know that I was already talking about a subject that's related to our diversity, our giftedness, and our conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. So I just want you to know that there was a divine conspiracy behind this morning's message. That God is up to something that I'm not even fully aware of. I'm not sure what God's going to do, but it involves us together pressing in to what the Spirit has for us. The Spirit's empowerment for mission using our diverse giftedness. So we're in this series called Adore, and we're exploring the subject of worship. And as a covenant church, we have a mission and vision which says that we want to be a new people rooted in Christ who passionately love God and purposely seek the renewal of our city. And as we move closer to Lent and Holy Week, culminating on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we're going to, uh, we're going to explore those latter two emphases, starting with the Adore series and then moving to a series called Love in Public. Love in Public is based on a quote by Dr. Cornell West which says, justice is what love looks like in public. And that's going to help us explore what it means to purposefully seek the renewal of our city. But in this Adore series, we're going to focus on that emphasis that says how we passionately love God. So in this series, we're specifically looking at what it means for us to uh, gather together on Sundays for corporate worship as the body of Christ. There's a lot of ways we could talk about worship. That's what we're focusing on in this series, the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. And two weeks ago, I kicked off this series with a message on worship as formation, in which I shared about my own journey from thinking about worship solely as the way that I express my worship to God, how what I do for God, to how God creates a space in worship where we are formed together by embodied practices. Remember that? So God is interested in shaping our loves. God is interested in shaping our deepest desires, our vision of the good life. For example, the American culture of consumerism also uses this method. The American culture of consumerism also aims for our hearts, not our minds. They want to capture our imagination, shape our loves, so they can empty our wallets and our purses, right? So Christian worship uses embodied practices to form our vision towards the kingdom of God, not the, not the kingdom of consumerism and uh, materialism. Christian worship is embodied practices that form us into the image of Jesus because he's our vision, our telos. 
Last week, I want to thank uh, Durr for preaching for us on the presence of God. I'm so grateful for Durr's willingness to share his gifts with our community, and I'm so grateful for his presence here. Uh, when, I, when I arrived at, you know, in St. Paul and I accepted this call to Pastor Roots, I prayed for God to raise up leaders, servant leaders, who would understand the complex intersections of culture and faith and multi-ethnic community. And I really believe that Durr is one of those leaders that God has raised up, and I'm grateful for him. Next week, Oshida, Pastor Oshida is going to be preaching for us, and uh, I'm really excited about that too, because, you know, I just, just want to let you in on something. As long as I'm pastor of Roots, uh, this is going to be a multi-voiced community, and I'm really passionate about that. I've, I think that it's my conviction that we cannot hear everything God has to teach us through just one voice. And so I'm grateful for those that make up, all of those that make up our teaching team. Darren and, and Emily are also part of our teaching team, Oshida and Durr. And um, Oshida's going to kick off a new way of facilitating community at Roots um, called Misfit Meals. She's going to kick that off with a sermon on worship and food. And we'll hear more about that. There's going to be a potluck. So that's exciting. So uh, we're going to hear more about that later. This morning, though, I'd like us to read together a passage from 1 Corinthians, which is the letter written by the Apostle Paul to a community of misfits on a mission in the ancient Roman city of Corinth. It's a passage about worship, and it's a passage about the working of the Holy Spirit amidst our giftedness, our unique and diverse giftedness. It's a passage that might appear at first a bit administrative, it's not a passage that we might typically think of. It's a little bit too in the weeds, maybe. Not, probably not heard a lot of sermons about it. Um, and it might not seem like the kind of passage that we should focus on. Uh, because it's so particular in its instructions that maybe we ask, like, does that really apply to us today? But this past week, God has really given me a new perspective on this passage that I want to share with you. That it's not only, it not only has to do with how we worship, but it has to do with how our worship, what it has to do with the world around us. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. Remember that worship is the space where God is forming us into the people that we're meant to be. People who look like Jesus and love like Jesus and love the world that Jesus loves. So when we talk about worship, we're not burying our heads in the sand and ignoring the world around us. When we talk about worship, and when we worship, when we come together as a worshiping community, we are recentering ourselves. We are recalibrating our hearts, reconnecting with God, so that our formation prepares us to be light and salt in the world, in our everyday lives. That's what it's all about. So I'm titling this message, One Spirit, Many Voices. And of course, that's an homage to... Dr. Richard Twist, famous uh, Lakota Sioux Native American theologian who passed away and uh, wrote a book called One Church, Many Tribes. But before we dive into the text this morning, would you join me in prayer for the Spirit's illumination? Holy Spirit of God, we need you this morning. We need you to break into our lives. We need you to break into our hearts and our minds and fill us with your vision. Give us your spirit eyes to see the world the way you see them. God, we need your 
your vision to see this passage afresh. Give us new eyes to see what you are doing in the midst of us as Roots Covenant Church. Give us eyes to see what you are doing in St. Paul through us. Give us vision and hope that we are a community that can impact our neighborhoods, this city. Lord, I pray that as we look into the scriptures this morning, that you would illuminate them to our hearts and to our minds. And I pray that you'd be at work among us in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. May it be true that we are consciously dependent upon you. May we press in this morning, trusting you, having courage from the Spirit to go into uncharted territory, bravely and boldly. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Can everybody say amen? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can turn there in your analog Bibles or digital Bibles if you have those. Follow along in your own translation. I am going to use the NIV, and I'll be reading from the screen behind me. Starting in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and somebody must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Pay attention to that. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm saying, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking, the forbid speaking in tongues. For everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. The word of the Lord. I noticed the women didn't say the word of the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, there's a big, obvious landmine in the middle of this passage that has to be addressed before I can move on to what I really want to talk about this morning. Uh, and before we can hear the overall wisdom of this passage. I think that this landmine prevents us from seeing how truly revolutionary this passage really is. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's really unfortunate. Because this passage is really beautiful, but 
But there's a couple verses that seem really ugly. And for a long time, those two verses have been used to silence women and prevent them from participating in leadership in the church. But that's not at all who the Spirit is, and that's not at all how the Spirit works. What Paul means in verse 34 and 35 is a hotly contested issue among scholars and theologians and Christian traditions. And I don't have time to, to survey all the different views and what people think. Never mind that that's not really my goal this morning anyways. But here's what you need to know. A mere three chapters previously, Paul specifically lays out guidelines for when women are prophesying. Chapter 11, verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. So just like all of Paul's letters, there are layers and layers and layers of context that I don't have time to unpack for you all this morning. What does head coverings refer to? What, what about the shame and dishonor cultures of ancient Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures? Uh, again, that's not the point of my sermon this morning, but, uh, but I am a Bible nerd. If you want to ask me those questions, I love talking about that kind of stuff. But here's my point. Paul in chapter 11 assumes women will be prophesying and praying out loud in the service, right? So whatever the silence is in chapter 14, it's not that. It cannot be a prohibition on all prophesying or praying. Or Paul would contradict himself within three chapters. And I think the Corinthians would have noticed that. That's my guess. So I don't accept the interpretation of chapter 14 that prohibits women from prophesying or teaching in the church. In fact, I believe that if you understand what Paul is doing in his context, Paul's teaching is actually very liberating for women. Paul recognizes God's empowerment of women at the time and in places where women were treated as second-class citizens at best. Paul believes that Jesus liberates people from the world's chains. Let me say that again. Paul believes Jesus liberates people from the world's chains. So, what was viewed as, sin, as shameful in ancient Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures was when a wife of one man would ask questions of another wife's husband. That was considered shameful. And it's still considered shameful in some cultures around the world today. That's not uncommon. But the liberating trajectory of Jesus' ministry and the overall teaching of the New Testament is to overthrow gender hierarchy. It's one of the powers that Jesus defeats on the cross, gender hierarchy. This is why Paul says that in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Messiah, Jesus. Every social division that creates hostility, animosity, competition, fear, hatred, and violence is done away with among the people of God. Now, if that weren't enough, if Galatians 3.28 is not enough to, to, uh, to convince us, Peter sees the absolute fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And this is what Peter says. He says, this was done to fulfill the prophecy which says, in the last days, declares God, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Yes, even on slaves, men and women alike, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now for me, that's enough. I'm convinced. But if you still have questions about gender equality in the church, go ask your husband. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, you can ask me. You can ask any of the leaders. It's fine. <laughs> that was a good joke though, right? You can also ask Tim Kruger. His, uh, his organization has some wonderful resources that they produce, Christians for Biblical Equality. Um, I'm also more than happy to share about my own journey, how I came to believe in uh, gender equality in the church. But like I said, this landmine in the middle of this passage has often blinded us to the revolutionary nature of the passage as a whole. And I think that's really unfortunate because this passage to me speaks of a picture of how the Spirit speaks through every member of the assembled body of Christ, each according to their God-given gifts. That's what this passage shows me. And I think that's, it's so obvious that maybe we overlook that. Most of us already know this, but you, you probably heard my story before, but the reason why I'm here today, figuratively and, and quite literally, is because somebody, a pastor, was sensitive to the Holy Spirit in a worship gathering like this, not unlike this, and spoke out a bold word from God that struck me to the heart and saved my life. That's why I'm here today. Had he not, been, had he not believed that the Spirit could speak through him in that moment, on the fly, in real time, I very well could have ended up a statistic. People would have said, oh, that kid, he was a dirt poor son of a mentally ill single mom. He got gang involved, went down the wrong path. He died or he went to prison. That's what they would have said about me. That was my trajectory. Were it not for the body of Christ gathering together and listening to the Holy Spirit. That church taught me that God plays no favorites. A bold word from God can come from the theologically trained book editor who's a missionary and speaks five languages, or a bold word from God can come from the beloved church mother who has a seventh grade education. The word of God doesn't originate with us. The word of God takes root in us and bursts forth from us when we are willing to be open to the spirit. The Sunday worship gathering of Jesus' disciples, the body of Christ, is a place where God's spirit is at work among God's people. And it didn't matter in Paul's day if you were a trained rabbi like him or if you were a slave. It didn't matter if you were Greek or Roman or Ethiopian or Syrian or Judean. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, disabled or able-bodied. It didn't matter if you were married or single. It didn't matter if you were male or female despite what it looks like in, that, in those two verses. The Spirit gave gifts to every member of Christ's body for the building up of the whole church. Do we realize how radical this was? This was absolutely revolutionary at the time. In Paul's day, in the first century, the dominant culture around the early church was the Roman Empire. And in the broader society, 
of the Roman Empire, there was a very clear hierarchy of power and privilege. It was like a pyramid. At the very, very top of the pyramid sat Caesar, the emperor. And he was literally worshipped as a god. And then you had the Roman senators who were highly favored leaders who enjoyed extreme privilege and power. There were also Roman aristocrats and merchants and philosophers who were famous and had wealth. And of course there was the powerful military officers and soldiers who enjoyed tremendous amount of power and privilege. Yes, there were a lot of wealthy women in Roman times, but they often were relegated to second-class citizenship as well, because most of the power and privilege was reserved for the men. Non-Romans were considered inferior, lower class, even if they were wealthy. Greeks and Romans were quite culturally prejudiced and ethnocentric. They considered other ethnic groups inferior, especially if they had conquered them like they had the Judeans. Then there were the slaves. Estimates of the percentage of the population of Italy in the first century ranged from 30 to 40 percent were slaves. That's two to three million slaves in Italy in the first century. Slaves were the lowest on that pyramid of power and privilege. Slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't exactly like the chattel slavery that was practiced here in the Americas, but it wasn't all that dissimilar. There was still a, uh, a dehumanizing aspect to it. Indentured servants were considered property and they were often abused. This is a mosaic. Go back. This is a mosaic of slavery in uh, Roman times. <clears throat> With all that in mind, Imagine for a moment that there's a community in the midst of the Roman Empire. And this community would gather together on the first day of the week, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. And they would sing songs, read from the Hebrew scriptures, and hear the apostolic preaching about Jesus. This Jewish man who was crucified by the Roman authorities, but who they believe rose from the dead and is the true emperor of the world. This group gathered in homes or in the courts of the Jerusalem temple. They ate together, and even some of them were Greeks and Romans and people from all over the world, all over the diaspora. And some of them were citizens of the Roman Empire, and some of them were slaves. Men and women both had roles of leadership. This gathered community was a bold sign of revolutionary rejection of the social norms. That hierarchy, they rejected it. The Spirit of God poured out on Jesus' followers was building an alternative way of life, a new way of being humans together, a society of shalom, right? A society where there's wholeness and harmony and right relatedness between people, a glimpse of that future where God would wipe away every tear, there'd be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, no more violence, no more oppression. And in, that, in the midst of that community was the living, active, provocative, 
healing, powerful, uniting spirit of God at work among them. I can hardly think of anything more disruptive to an oppressive regime than a community like that. I can hardly think of anything more liberating, more beautiful. Our world today needs a community like that. A refuge from that nagging sense that we get that we don't measure up. That we weren't born in the right place. That our skin isn't the right color. That our measurements aren't right. That we don't go to the right schools. We don't have the right pedigrees. That we don't support the right causes or politicians or parties. There's a thousand different ways that the world chops us up, divides us up, and ranks us by our value. And unfortunately, sometimes the gifts of the Spirit used in churches can affirm those divisions instead of destroying them. And giving some people power over others in the church. Part of my goal this morning is to present a balanced view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in the worship gathering. This is partly because I've experienced the whole spectrum. I've been part of worship gatherings and even on staff at churches where the gifts of the Holy Spirit were used to manipulate people or to prop up someone's leadership. But I've also been a part of churches. Their caution came from a place of fear. Anybody can relate to that? That's not healthy either. Over 15 years ago, I was a youth pastor in New Orleans, and um, Oshita and I were engaged. And uh, I was invited to a youth summit at a church that, had, that seemed like it had a very thriving youth ministry. And I was told that there was going to be a prophet there. And I went anyways. I was Pentecostal in those days. And um, so we arrived at this youth summit, lots of teens, most of them were white. And um, after the message, this prophet figure was giving uh, prophetic words to the teenagers. And I started to notice something that was troubling me. The prophet gave prophetic encouragement to all these white kids. And the very first black kid that he prayed for, prophesied for, he just started rebuking the spirit of poverty off that kid. And I remember thinking, how does he know that kid's poor? And it happened over and over again like that. It was like, this kid, ah, I see a future, a bright future in you. You, you know, get the devil off this one. And I was like, hmm. So then it came time for me and Oshita to get prayed for. We were already engaged. <laughs> we got up there and he took, he took one look at us. And he said, ah, I pray, that, I pray that these guys would just be friends. He said, uh, yeah, he said, um, oh, I pray that they would just be, just be good friends. Just be friends. And uh, there were some amens from the, from the white, older white people in the back. And uh, we'd already done our work. We'd already prayed and fasted and broke up a few times, got back together consulted our mentors and wise counsel, and we, we knew this was from God, so needless to say, we left that night feeling uh, more hurt than loved. The school that I went to for training, my undergrad, uh, Bible college, prophecy was very much encouraged. Every chapel, every prayer meeting, prophecy could pretty much break out anywhere. 
And um, depending on who the prophecy was being given by, uh, it could be very encouraging or it could be very judgmental. Sometimes we had prophecy fights, <laughs> dueling prophecies. From one side of the chapel, you'd hear, God is spreading his arms around you like a bear hug. And from the other side of the room, God despises your false worship. Repent and fall on your faces and beg for mercy. I'm only exaggerating a little bit. So. But I'll never forget the authentic experiences of prophecy. Hi there. You have a word? Would you like to give a word? No? Okay. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes, they say. All right. So I'll never forget the authentic experiences of prophecy that I've experienced. <laughs> He's back. Hi there. Uh, when I was in college, I was part of a campus ministry at the University of Illinois called Excel Campus Ministries. Terry Ostra, who, who, who spoke here, was the pastor. And we met in the architecture building on campus. Very hard, pull-down seats to sit in, but, but we were hungry. There was only like 30 or 40 of us, but we were hungry. We had all-night prayer chains. We, we, um, we, we stayed long past when we were scheduled to be there. We just lost track of time in those days. And um, several times that year, I had a similar experience. Here's what would happen to me. In worship, I would sense something. I, would, I, I, I had an impression from God. A message from God would, would sit on me like a brick on my chest. And I would be asking God, is this for me or is this for the group? But I, I'd hear a message in my heart and my mind so clearly, and then I would just refuse to speak it out. Just refuse. Just like, no, God, I'm not saying that. And more than a couple times, I'm talking like three, at least three times, as I refused, somebody else spoke it out. And I mean verbatim, sometimes. Sometimes it was like, how did, how did you know what I was getting ready to say but was, was not willing to say, right? That happened more than a few times. And I said, to, I said, Lord, I'll be obedient next time. Please forgive me. After that, after that happened enough times, I stopped resisting. And I started speaking out. And I've had ex that experience in different cities. I've had that experience in different churches, different denominations. I've had that experience in different stages in my life. It happened to me while I was a teenager. It happened to me in seminary. God is no respecter of persons. Here's the key. God is always speaking to us. We're just not always listening. And we're not always willing to speak out that which we sense from God. That's the key. For me, there was a lot of reasons why I refused to speak out. I thought, who am I to speak this word? I don't have a seminary degree. I'm not a pastor or a minister. Or I thought, I'm too sinful to speak this word out. I'm not holy enough. I also thought, what will people think of me? Will people think I'm self-centered, attention-seeking? Will people think that I think I'm more holy than them? I also thought, I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know the Bible like some of the people here do. Somebody more educated, more spiritual should speak this word out. Maybe if I was female, I would have thought, I'm a woman. Nobody's going to take me seriously. People will think I'm overstepping some kind of bounds. I should just keep quiet. Let me ask you something. and I want, I want, I want, this, I want this question to settle on you. Let this question settle on you. 
What would God's Spirit say through you if you were uninhibited by fear, ego, and the social constructs that silence you? Let me ask you again. What would God's Spirit say through you if you were uninhibited by fear, ego, and the social constructs that silence you? The reason why that question is so relevant is because in this body, when we gather together to worship the crucified Messiah, those inhibitors are defeated. Can I get an amen? Those, those social constructs, our own egos, our fear has been defeated on the cross and in the resurrection. In this gathering, God's spirit empowers whoever God chooses. When we worship God, God is making us into the kind of people who practice radical equality. God is making us into a harmony of different voices, altos and sopranos, tenors and baritones, so that we can sing God's praises in one song. In this series, we're emphasizing that Christian worship is about embodied practices and not mental exercises. So I want to lead us in an embodied practice this morning. And it's going to stretch some of you. I hope it does. I kind of intended it to. <laughs> because growth often requires stretching. Did you know that? The older I get, the more sore I get when I exercise. Because my muscles don't enjoy being stretched beyond their comfort zone. And a little bit of controlled discomfort in a safe space can be exactly what we need to move into a new encounter with God. You know what one of my pastors would love to say all the time? He used to say, you can't receive something new from God by doing the same old thing. Ain't that true? And the Spirit of God is God's uncontrolled, uncontrolling love. The Spirit of God is gentle. God's Spirit won't take over our bodies and force us to do what we're unwilling to do. The Spirit invites us to partner with God and be joined with God in the communication of God's Word. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to move among us. The Holy Spirit is everywhere present all the time. But Jesus promised that the Spirit would be especially present in powerful ways among God's people. Especially when we gather for worship and when we're on mission together. Before I pray, let me allow, allow me to say a few things. As we quiet our hearts and our minds before God, I want you to pay attention to your thoughts. Pay attention to your thoughts, but don't judge them. Observe your thoughts like a neutral observer. Are your thoughts accusatory like mine were? Ask God to protect you from the voice of your ego. Ask God to protect you from your fears. Ask God to protect you from the voice of social constructs that belittle you. And allow this to settle on you. 
What is it, Jesus, that you are saying to your people right now? What do your people need to hear today? We're going to follow Paul's instructions. I'm going to ask that only about two or three of us speak out at most. And then we're going to sit with that word for a minute or two. And then I'm going to pray again. I want to encourage you, you you don't have to speak in King James English. You don't have to speak in first person. What is the impression laid on your heart? What is the picture God is showing you? Maybe it's a specific phrase, a word. Give the Spirit permission to use your heart and your mind to communicate a word in real time using your unique giftedness, your experiences, your vocabulary, your heart and your mind. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we are dependent on you. You are the breath in our lungs. You are the one from God who enlivens us, who fills us up. You are the one from God who speaks a word in time directly to our hearts and to our minds in this space, in this body. Holy Spirit of God, we pray for a timely word this morning. Stir up your people, O oh God. I pray that in this gathering, we would, we would practice radical equality, revolutionary equality, that you are a God that destroys every social construct that belittles, tears down every dividing wall, I pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit today. Speak through your people to your people, we pray. And God, I pray that your spirit would fill us with your love. Fill us with your, your urgent heart for this world. I pray that your spirit would send us empowered with a word from heaven. And I pray that as we sit with this word, you would give us wisdom to discern your will. 